You're listening to the Everett Foursquare Lowell Podcast. Please follow us on Facebook and enjoy the message. I'm so grateful to be here with you. I, I love your pastor, and I don't say that tritely. Um, I have to tell you something. Um, I just came from a, a Foursquare Leaders Conference in California. I get to be with Ben at one in Beaverton here uh, sometime next month. And I love our Foursquare family. Uh, we are diverse. Uh, we are deep and wide. A um, lot of different people, a lot of different personalities, all kinds of different gifts. This is the gift of your pastor. I don't know any other pastor who has his attitude. Uh, the attitude of Christ. He reminds me of the section of scripture in Philippians where it said of Jesus that he saw himself as less, uh, even in the face of the cross. That uh, I've watched Ben lead through difficulty. He's an encouragement and a, uh, a very, very close friend of my own pastor. He's been to my home church several times, and uh, I've just seen that consistently. And I wish it wasn't true, but it's rare right? And it's rare because we're human, right? We're just, you know, the pastor in the pulpit's just a guy or a gal, and they've got all their own problems, and we all carry our own burdens. I'm carrying a heavy, heavy burden for a friend today. Um, and I woke up with the burden. I mean, I went to sleep with the burden. It's, it's a heavy burden, and my friend is, is, is a great man uh, who, who's gotten, he's just a human, though. And and so when we have these refreshing friendships in our lives, uh, I think we need, to, um, we need to call them out. And, and there are things, I mean, if there is something in our life that we have, we can take notice of and be thankful for, we must. We must. Otherwise, we're entitled, right? And so that thankfulness of heart, the, the, that's, you know, and, and even the, the mysterious dynamic that the scripture gives us about the, the metanoia, uh, repentance is metanoia, it's changing your mind and it has a relationship with the heart, that there's this transformation uh, that starts in the mind and it, and it, and it transitions to the heart, and, but then you're like, does it really start in the mind or does it start in the heart, you know, and it, it's, there's a mystery there, right? Um, but the fact is, is that we can be changed. Paul used the word comport. Uh, it gets translated in 2 Corinthians 5.14 most times as compelled. The word compelled kind of has this sense of you don't really have a choice. Uh, hello, Congressman, I'm compelled to testify today. You know, that we, that's where we hear that word. And, and, but it's, a, it's an internal pressurization that changes. And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing from the change. Paul goes on to say, I don't see people the same way anymore. I see them according to their, this is a paraphrase, according to their full potential in Christ. Even that neighbor who's bugging me to death, you know, I see them according to their full potential in Christ. I love the girl in that video. Uh, her story's gone a long ways. That's a sanitized version, of course, of her story, but she's in graduate school now. Um, we got a lot of girls in college. A few years back, girls who've been sexually trafficked and rescued, um, when we looked at our broader field, we weren't satisfied with the outcomes. Thought, you know, not every girl is capable of this, but are we really pushing for the highest potential of every human that God has assigned to us? 
And there are two questions that we ask all of our children that are critically important. All of us, we all do it, our children, our grandchildren. Do you want to know Jesus? It's a really good question. Second one is right up there. What do you want to be when you grow up? All right? We ask it over and over again. Changes every single time. You know, uh, it's all over the map. Why do we ask that question? Because we're engaging a dream mechanism that has them reaching in their hearts, right? Our, when a girl comes into our care, she's not stable. She's thinking about the next 10 minutes and, and how to get out. And there's a lot that informs that. I think in our sort of safe and dry mindset, um, you know, um, I've never been victimized in such a way. So um, in our safe and dry mindset, you think, oh, they're so thankful because you're caring for them, you love them, and they've got a new set of clothes and a teddy bear and a bed. They're not. They hate you for doing this to them, right? This is, they think that they're in love with somebody. You've taken them away from their street family. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, stabilization, we define it as this. A girl is stable when she starts dreaming again. When the dream mechanism kicks in, she can answer that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? We started not being afraid of the answer of that question, their answer to that question because some of the answers involved a college education. These girls come to us two years behind in school, on average. So we have to do catch-up education, we mainstream them where possible, say, well, what about a college education? And a few years back, we started kind of pursuing that. Last year, we enrolled seven girls into college, one girl into medical school. This year, two girls into law school, and all of them came to us two years behind in school. Here's the thing. We are all bearers of the image of God, every single one of us. And it isn't just, so what does it mean to be a bearer of the image of God? We, we look like him. We really do. You look like God. You have the face of Jesus, every one of us. Uh, he, he crafted us. He was the artist, but he did this other thing. He breathed himself into us. And it means that we have his emotional complex and so when you have scriptures where God comes alongside Samuel after they've rejected him as judge because they want this king, and he's feeling dejected, and God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. You know from the scripture directly that God knows rejection, that he shares an emotional complex that is him with us. That's part of being bearers of the image of God that we are like him in these ways. Now, we're not him, obviously, and obviously we've broken and fallen. And, and when we broke, when we fell, it was into a billion different sharp-edged pieces. But can I tell you something about that? That God saw everything in the fall. I think sometimes when we cross a new moral threshold in our culture, that the alarm of evangelical Christianity is like, we've got to get a news network up to tell God this is happening, right? And because uh, he obviously doesn't know. No, he saw it all happen in the fall. He's not, he is not alarmed by any new point of breakage in humanity. And, and we can look forward and say it's getting worse and worse. I'm telling you something. I don't know what's worse, forward or back, because we can look back and see some horrifying things, right? We can look present. We can look future. It's not lost on God. Human trafficking is not lost on God. Uh, Compassion First is a four-square birthed relief and development organization. 
specializing in anti-trafficking, specifically child sexual trafficking. We run uh, world-class aftercare facilities, providing wraparound care in a trauma-informed environment, catch-up education, as I've explained, dream building with the goal of college where possible. Um, we've had some standout stories in that regard, but what I want to say to that is we celebrate the girl that survives high school, too. We celebrate the girl that just makes it home safe. We celebrate that. Um, a girl is the arbiter of her own potential. Uh, each child is an individual and a person. If they can walk out the door under their own agency, that is freedom by definition. COVID has been uh, very hard on our work. We are privileged to do prevention and community development work in blighted communities. And this is the makeup of these blighted communities. We work in cemeteries. Cemeteries that are central to the major cities turn into penny brothels at night. And there are slums around them that are informed by these cemeteries and otherwise informed by day work. Uh, you have generational poverty, you have generational prostitution. Uh, you also have uh, the prostitution of these places being sort of the end of the road for, for people who have sort of matriculated through an underground system of prostitution, and this is the last stop. Um, the community, we presume, is 100% HIV positive, um, and it is the most privileged work that we get to do. It is precious work, and it's hard work. Uh, COVID has been very hard on our work, but I could not be more proud of our teams, both here and there. First of all, I mean, this thing that we're doing up in uh, Marysville, we've got uh, three nights, Marysville, Arlington, and Oak Harbor. First fundraising we've done in two full years. We've not fundraised for two years. And God has been good to us. And that's all I can say. You say, well, how'd you do it? I have no idea. God's just been good to us. He's brought us faithful people. It's like a church, you know, and, and, and the faithful of the church don't go running when things get hard. We just figure out how to help each other, right? And so I was last in Indonesia with our team in March of 2020. So I have 70 staff that I have not seen face-to-face -face for over a year and a half. Uh, COVID has gone through like a forest fire a couple times, and... Um, at first, we were able to keep it out. We furloughed some staff with pay. We did not cut pay uh, uh, in order to reduce in and out in the shelters, which meant you overtimed some people and paid hazard pay. So it's been more expensive, not less expensive. Um, in March we built, of last year, we built out plans for a lot of unknowns, built in a lot of safety protocols, um, did everything we can to keep a buffer between us and the and and the uh, virus, uh, I got to say that I'm most proud of our cemetery staff. Um, these are people who are case managers and um, tutors and, um, you know, just community development folks who are, the, the main part of their job is enrolling kids in school who haven't been in school before. And, and we have drop-in shelters and so on. Those had to close down for a while. But what happened was, and I'll say this, you know, how, do you, how would you manage a pandemic? I don't know. Like, if you were governor, what would you do? I have no idea, I'm just pastor boy. What do I know? You know, what I know is whatever I do is gonna make everybody mad, right? And so, and here's the proof, everybody's mad, right? So, so here's what I do know. 
that the protective measures that we have taken globally have protected people of means. And it has crushed the backs of the poor. It has crushed the poor. And so that cemetery community, it's made up of day workers. This is what day work is. I'm working for today's food. That's day work. Well, the day work's the first thing to dry up. And so we had to pivot to food security. It's not in our wheelhouse. We've never done it before. It's not our thing. It's not a core competency. I'm so proud of what they've done. Right now, they're providing food security for over 1,000 families between East Java and Bali, providing food securities for brothels in Bali that are packed, uh, but they're not being fed. Um, and they've done it in a case-managed fashion, and it's just been incredible. So this is the point I'm getting to, and then I'm going to get to a message here. In 2020, we scrapped all expansion plans. How can we plan to expand this year? We don't even know if we're going to raise money. And, and we don't know what this thing's going to do to our team. One of our plans for expansion was to expand into another cemetery, the Ranka Cemetery, about an hour away. The doors were almost wide open, but not quite. We, and we only go where we're invited. And, and so we said, okay, we're going to have to wait. That's going to have to go on the back burner for another year or so. And we started doing the food security work in our primary cemetery, the Yellow Flower. And it just went right over to the Ranka and we expanded and somebody came along and funded it. And it came from a very unexpected source, funded it for a whole year. And when I say unexpected source, like maybe don't believe in Jesus the way we do, but they were totally fine funding this. And so that's kind of the manner that God has been good to us. It's our story. We've expanded through COVID. God has provided. I thank you for your love and support. And uh, I'm sorry that it's taken this long to get here uh, because you've been awfully good to us. And so um, please come to this event. We're calling it a taste of Indonesia. I haven't been to Indonesia in 18 months. We're doing our best to bring it here. Uh, it's going to be good food, great stories, uh, a fun time. Uh, we're going to hear from some of our people in the field um, and bring some updates and a, a much broader picture of, of the work and have a night of fellowship together. And that's at Marysville Foursquare. Our friend Aaron Thompson is the pastor there. And, uh, and they will be very welcoming of all of us. Let's turn to Mark 14 this morning. I love the book of Mark for a number of reasons. I love the just the facts, ma'am, nature and flow of the book, right? It's the shortest of the Gospels, which serves my short attention span well. Um, but it's, an it's a critically important book in the canon. A lot of scholars actually believe that Matthew and Luke kind of cheated off of Mark's paper when they were writing their own accounts. And, and it's interesting now, um, through this time, Ben sort of alluded that to um, some, some of the ways that we get to support pastors, which is really up to pastors, um, but we see it as a, a deep calling, is to be supportive of pastors in any way that we can. I've been so proud of the church, uh, of pastors leading their churches through this season. A lot of pressure um, and a lot of things that pastors have never faced before a lot of things that none of us have ever faced before, right? We expect our pastors to be a lot of things. We, we want them to like do our stock picks for us and be right, you know? And so can you just share stock picks from the pulpit and tell us they're anointed by the Holy Spirit and you will be right every time, right? And tell us how to vote and, or ma and make sure it's how I'm voting. 
And, you know, that's, the expectations are pretty weird. Um, in this time, we've been able to cover for some uh, sabbaticals and some time off for pastors, and it's been great. Uh, but when you visit a place a few times, uh, they'll start giving you assignments and, or, or fitting you into a series, right? I love that. And this was a series I was tucked into, and I've just kept preaching it because I love this message from Mark 14. This series was the kingdom of God is at hand and, and specifically confronting the kingdoms of the world. And in Mark 14, starting in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Let's just read a few verses. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the Passover celebration because they had their standards. And so, actually, the standard was the people may riot. And meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. And she has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. And I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And I want to make the case for confronting the kingdom of religiousness or religiosity. I don't know if those are actual words or not, but I just want to run with them. Let's just decide they are. I think certainly all of us have heard the term or experienced a religious spirit. Frankly, I think it's easier to navigate almost anything else. Once you apply religious authority to something, it's game over as far as conversation goes. Um, and, and I don't think that that just in, applies to the church or to religious practices. I think it's all over. I'm pretty convinced that almost everything is religious. I will say that in my backpack I have a Denver Broncos face mask and a Denver Broncos hat and I know that I'm in deep Seahawks territory here. I wisely wore my Compassion First mask this morning just to, just to keep people on my side, right? Um, and I say that jokingly but it's uh, there are things of self-righteousness uh, that are so deeply into our culture now, it's in everything. And obviously, uh, the most obvious place to go is that it's in our divided politics, right? And it's not that we have divided politics. I think we should have divided politics, you know? Um, it's this idea that at least I'm not that, therefore I'm okay that there's this self-righteous line, at least I'm not that, therefore I'm okay. At least I'm not either, therefore I'm better than all of you, right? Um, you get what I'm saying? And, and then there's this assignment of God, God is on our side. No, God is on our side. I don't believe in God, but if there was a God, he would be on my side, right? It's all self-righteous. It's assigning God to our thinking. It's all self-righteous. It's interesting, Pastor Randy, our Foursquare president, preached from Joshua 5 uh, a couple of days ago, and that passage where 
where they'd crossed the Jordan and Joshua, at the time where he could have started getting a little self-confident, God gives him a gift of his presence, a Christophany, and Joshua asks the dumbest question, are you for us or against us, right? Which, which one are you on? Tell me now. And, and, and the Christophany just said, uh, neither, no. And the, are, are you following after me? And that, that opportunity to walk behind the Christ in humility into the things that he would conquer, the things that he would gain. I want to give some background on this uh, vignette in Scripture because this is the disciples. You know why we know it's the disciples? Uh, they said one year's wages. We've heard wages and time combined together before. And... Um, and you have Judas in the verses following, and so we kind of pin it on Judas, but I think it's all of them. I think it's really all of them. I'll make the case for it being all of them. There are several um, mentions of money through the Gospels, uh, and a couple of instances just pop out, especially where time and money is concerned, the feeding of the 5,000 being the big one. Um, and it was the debate around the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had compassion on the people, and he wants to help them. And, and Jesus, compassion means to suffer with. And, and, and God-born compassion is not self-righteous. God-born compassion says, okay, we, we can, it's impossible, but we can figure out how to do something here, right? And, and so they immediately go to time and money. It's eight months' wages. This is eight months' wages. And when you look at this, there's a comparative suffering between the compassion of Jesus, which is to suffer with, and the releasing of whatever eight months of resources meant to these 12 men. And it meant something to them. Jesus' brand of compassion seeks solution to suffer with. Um, it's not very practical. It's not very pragmatic. It just has to do with wherever you're at in a moment. Why eight months' wages? Why did they say this? I think it's because they had a pile of money. They had a big pile of money. Judas was, of course, in charge of the money, so we focus on him because of this. But in the episode in John 6 and elsewhere, it shows us that they all kind of had their eye on the money because they all said it's eight months' wages. They were all watching the bag. And the bag was starting to get smaller. This prolonged road trip that they were on was awesome. They didn't want it to end. They were the primary groupies with a rock star who was Instagram famous. And it was funded by something. And if they feed all these people, this party is going to come to an end eight months sooner. So how were they funded? I think we know how they were funded. I think I can make the case for how they were funded. In Luke 5, when Jesus called his first disciples, he demonstrably showed himself to be the incarnational savior. Incarnational means that he walks right into the middle of us. I mean, into the middle of our stuff, into the middle of our kitchens, into the middle of our bedrooms, into the middle of the stuff we don't want people to see, into the middle of our professional lives that he wants to be in the middle of all of it. 
And so these fishermen are done for the day, and I'm guessing it's about an hour process that they go through to clean up and maintain uh, the tools that they have to make their living, and they're done with that, and they're just wrapped up, and it's not been a good day. They didn't catch anything. And Jesus just invites himself onto their boat and walks into the middle of their business. You're getting into my business. And he, and he says, ah, I haven't been on one of these before. Let's push it out. And they pushed it out. And then he's really pressing his luck by saying, let's throw the nets over. Let's see what happens. All right, show me how this works, right? And they start catching fish. And it's a lot of fish. And the Bible says it's so much that, that the other boat, the partner boat, had to come alongside. And that both holes were so full that it was, they were almost compromised. Now, these were commercial fishing boats. This is how these men made their, their living. These weren't uh, water ski boats. These were commercial fishing boats. They were, uh, they were large. And if you're like me, ask questions like, well, where did that fish go? And the feeding of the 5,000 shows us how Jesus does business, that he doesn't trash anything. He had a distribution plan and he had a cleanup plan and they didn't trash that park that day even though 5, 10, 14, 15,000 people may have eaten. I'm pretty sure that fish went to market. It was not dumped on the side of the lake. And so I've done this calculation a few different ways. I come up with different numbers. I can't say it with 100% certainty, but at today's tilapia prices... That much fish would have drawn six hundred to $900,000. Pencil that out, budget 13 guys on the road for three years, lodging, food, guests, roadside motels, double occupancy. The group expanded from time to time. It would have cost them about that much. That's a long time to be on the road. It's, there's a budget for it, right? And the feeding of the 5,000, by that time, they had started to watch the resources get a little smaller. When they got to the Last Supper, they were out of money. They were out of money, and they were all disillusioned. Jesus' compassion, understanding the hunger of the people versus not having as much for their ongoing activity, that's what they had to weigh. Now they're weighing, what are we even doing tomorrow? Even in the most extraordinary of ministry contexts, whether this church or the work that I get to do, anything, the work that I get to do, you got to go beg for money, right? Every ministry context and every single context of our life, our homes, our children, especially our children, are cash-burning bonfires. <laughs> our children, we just shovel the cash in and the flame goes higher and it demands more, right? And, you know, when they're six, it's 20s. And when they're 16s, it's hundreds, right? It's just, you know... In John 6, they're pretty open about their concern. In Mark 14, they had figured out a way to say it in a more religious way. That should have been sold and given to the poor. Dripping with disapproval, condescension, removed from the humanity of the moment, comfortably tucked inside the posture of right versus wrong, with a clear delivery from the established camp of the correct. And Jesus gives us a response that requires us to ask questions. He says, you'll always have the poor. You won't always have me. That's a head scratcher. That's right up there with let the dead bury their own dead. 
right? Those are days where you come to your friend Jesus and say, you sure you're feeling okay? Do you know what you just said? It's a packed, full, loaded statement for us, though, and there's not an ounce of dismissiveness about the poor. It would be inconsistent with the entirety of Scripture and the entirety of Jesus' life. There is plenty of dismissiveness about religiosity. And without saying much, I believe Jesus gives us a wide-open lens on two or three eternal truths, and the first is this. The first is there are consequences to losing sight of Jesus, but it's just easy to do. I say the word consequence carefully because I don't mean it like punishment. That's a different faith system. Punishment is a performance-based faith system, not a grace-based faith system. It's stoicism, do more, try harder, get closer. It's more of a sense of natural consequences, like there are natural losses to neglected intimacy. Judas had lost touch with Jesus. His heart was a long way gone. He wasn't believing in, in him in the same way anymore. It's arguable that they were all in this exact same place. We have the famous cases from the Last Supper of betrayal, abandonment, doubting. But the scripture says that they all abandoned him. They all abandoned. So they're all, let's just assume they're all in the same place. And, and it's important to note this, and it is the same for us. And this is the consequence. This is, this is one side of it. And it is this, that Jesus was actually there and available for them the whole time. He never changed. These are the consequences of losing sight of Jesus. Let me just say a couple things. One, when we lose sight of him, we tend to set our sights on the wrong things. It becomes self-evident when we lose sight of him, in fact. See, they had different expectations of Jesus, and he wasn't even coming close to meeting those expectations. They started off with this massive financial strength. So you understand the significance of him saying, come on, I'll show you how to be fishers of men. You mean we're going to make more money? I mean, they're following. They didn't know he was Jesus. They didn't know he was the Messiah. They did not believe in him as God. They were just following you can ask the question, when did Peter get saved? We don't know. We just know that it was sometime between them and the time that he said, I think you're the Messiah. That you know that he fully believed at that moment. They had expectations of him. He wasn't even coming close. As they started to believe in him, they thought he would become a political strength. This is the guy that's going to throw off Rome. This is the guy that's going to take over. This is the guy, we're no longer going to be subjugated to them. Maybe they'll be subjugated to us. This is our guy. Kind of goes back to, we want a king. And you kind of have to fast forward and ask the question, do we kind of do that right now? And Jesus had none of it. None of it. He's got all the goods. He's powerful. He's endorsing of our culture, our thinking, our heritage. He's our guy. This was such a prevailing thought. Even though Jesus said it wasn't going to happen, in fact, I'm going to die and resurrect myself. But none of what you think is going to happen is going to happen. And then he died and resurrected himself. But this was such a prevailing thought that they were still asking about it after the death and resurrection. They had a 40-day overtime period with Jesus. Bonus time. 
And there's an episode within there where you see the disciples and you can kind of see them elbowing him and saying, you're going to do it now? You're going to burn this thing down? You're going to take over now? And he's so tired of them, he just changes the subject. And he says, oh, that's my father's business. And then he says, this is what I am going to do. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. There are consequences to losing sight of Jesus. And they are so personally costly. And they are so unnecessary. We get distracted by very unnecessary things. Unnecessary things that become things of consequence in the end. Other things will always take up the space of Jesus. And self-righteousness will tell us that those are eternal things. We're in a million culture wars right now. And by we're, I'm not talking about like, I mean, America's in a million culture wars, but like the church is like fully engaged in a million culture wars right now. And it just just begs the question, is that our mission? Is, Is it our mission? And we're attaching God to the fight according to our own thinking. And it's not unique to us. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's recruiting God to the fight, right? So I'm not saying we're better or worse than anybody. I'm just saying we hold to transcendent truths and a transcendent message that God is above all things. And here's the thing is this is where God has us right now. I said it to my exec- our, our executive director in Indonesia because she got COVID for a second time and one of our girls got sick. That means it's going to go through the whole shelter. And she's like, I'm so sorry I did this. I said, Winda, you need not apologize. Of course, this is an accident. But I said, this is where God has us right now. We're doing our best with it. But this is where he has all of us. You know how I know that? We're all here. <laughs> this is where he has us. And he has not changed. And our calling has not changed. It begs the question of the full meaning of Scripture when Jesus said, you know what, there's going to be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars. What's a rumor of war? And I think that, I think that there's some unfortunate shadow side to our, our use of war metaphors as they're presented in the Scripture. Not to deny that there's a spiritual war. There is, of course, a spiritual war, but it's a spiritual war. And and that is one that is led by God with God's understanding. My, My human understanding breaks down so fast. It breaks down so fast. And I know that I will get myself into the wrong fights. And so we have the scripture to put on the armor of God. And... Ever since I was a teenager, I think I've been taught that scripture wrong. You know, it's been attached to be bold, be strong, you know, and, 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 and things of Joshua and, you know, and like, okay, go force people into the kingdom and get in a fight if necessary, you know, and, um, and don't let anybody tell you, you know, you're wrong and prove them right, you know, and these debate things like, I know nothing This is what I know. I believe in Jesus. So the armor of God. Why did Paul even use the armor metaphor? Well, he was writing from prison. And he probably had two best friends. 
left guard, right guard. <laughs> they were in armor, right? And you know, oh, okay, I get it. I'm going to tell me I'm going to write this down. Put on salvation. Let it control all of your thinking. Let it be the top of everything you have. This covering of your head, salvation. I'm saved. I didn't provide that for myself. I don't know any better because of it. I just know I believe in Jesus. Put on righteousness. Put on the character of Christ, covering all of your most important parts. And, and, and put it in a place that, I mean, it goes wherever you move, right? It points wherever you point. It's, it's always there. And, and fasten up truth. Let me tell you something about truth and the location of truth. We don't fight from here. We don't fight from here. It just holds us together. Put, put on, as far as the movable parts, the peace of God. Be ready with peace. Not for a fight. Be ready with peace. And as for stuff that you hold on to, your faith is all you got to hide behind. Somebody, I just believe in Jesus. I just believe in Jesus. And, and then this offensive thing, the word of God and how it says that it divides marrow and spirit, whose does it divide? It divides mine. It's the word of God that changes me, but I have no power to change anybody else with it. It's if I let it into my heart. And so somewhere along the way, when I was a teenager, I'm convinced this is when it happened, somebody wrote another verse in there. Now go pick a fight. But I can't find that verse. Put on the character of Christ. How do we survive these times? With the character of Christ. God's going to get us through. This is where he has us. I'll, I'll wear this. You know why? It's a cloak and tunic issue. Hate wearing it. Hate being told to wear it. Hate going into Costco and saying, you have your mask on and everything in me grumbles. You self-righteous. Da, da, da. You know, it's a cloak and tunic issue. You can have my cloak. You can have my tunic. If this serves you, absolutely. I'm not going to fight you over it. I got other things. I got, other, I got bills to pay. You know? Put on the character of Christ. One of the great privileges we have, is, as I've said, is caring for pastors. This is what this time has been like for pastors. Let me just reveal. Pastor will call me. Uh, I hate this. Monday, family left my church. Called me and told me, I'm too liberal. Tuesday, another family left. I'm too conservative. <laughs> what does that pastor do? Oh, our expectations of our neighbors. And our expectations should be on ourselves and what Jesus is doing in us. When we lose sight of him, here's the thing. Second thing about losing sight of him. We inevitably become self-focused. It's how we know we've lost sight of him. I love thinking about myself. It's my favorite subject. But in reality, it only takes so long for me to get sick of myself. Judas met a brutal end at his own hands. He had lost connection with Jesus. He was left to his own thinking. 
Some terrible decision-making followed. Self-focused thinking gave way to self-destructive thinking. Self-destructive thinking gave way to self-destructive action. Ultimately, he couldn't live with himself. Because it's only two verses, we say, well, that escalated quickly. I don't think so. I think it's been going on for a while. We lose sight of him. We lose the always available intimacy with God. Always available. And the tragic thing is that that's always unnecessary because Jesus doesn't change, he doesn't go away, and Jesus' affection for us doesn't wane. That's the main body of the message. I just want to add a couple more things this morning. The second point that I think Jesus shows us, and he shows us sort of through the back door, is there are, there are consequences for neglecting the poor. There are consequences for neglecting the poor. Jesus makes this statement about the poor, and we shouldn't be confused by it. To think that he's being dismissive of the poor would obviously be inconsistent. You see, God never takes his eyes off the poor. There seems to be a 2,000 reference threshold for the most important things to God in Scripture. And and the poor is one of those 2,000 reference thresholds. The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He talks on and on and on about the poor and oppressed. I, I, in my electronic Bible, I have a color for whenever I read about the poor. And every day I mark something new where God has referenced the poor and oppressed. He never takes his eyes off of them. And we should understand this statement as you will always have the privilege of caring for the poor. We are all called to care for the poor and oppressed. That is a different call for each of us. We're not all to do the same things. We have different primary assignments in our lives. All of us are providers in some way. Those are primary assignments. Our children, our grandchildren, we are to care for them, our our spouses, our households, obviously. For some of us, we have hands-on assignments. For others, it's the way we pray. God bless the godly men and women, mostly those of age, who no longer have the burden of a profession and have discovered the amount of time they have to pray for the people they love. God bless those people who have learned to access the throne because they are sustaining you and me because they pray for us. And be thankful for those people who do that, who, who are those people in our lives. Identify them. Take them out to dinner. Thank them. For some of us, it's part of our worship through our generosity. And God has uniquely gifted some of us to be very generous. Some of us are just Barnabas-like encouragers to frontline workers which is as valuable as anything. And in doing so, it is a tactical assault on the kingdoms of this world. Jesus was so serious about this that he put it into parable form in talking about sheep and goats. There's a lot of nuance to a lot of things that Jesus said. There is no nuance in the sheep and goats story. It is like one or the other. And it's it's a freak-me-out parable. There are two things that take the fear out of that parable because you're either a sheep or a goat. And he says it, I don't know you, or I know you. There are two things that take the fear out of that. And the first is this, when you walk intimately with Jesus, it just flows from you. Taking care of other people just flows from you. 
It's a, it's a matter of abundance. It's not a religious exercise. It's just a part of your life. God will tell you where to serve. God will tell you what to give. God will tell you how to love and comfort others. And secondly, when you walk intimately with Jesus, it's just a matter of joy. It's going to bring joy to your life. It's not going to feel like sacrifice. I, I urge you to come next week because we're going to talk more about this woman, Manar. Manar is my hero. She's a woman from the cemetery. She has four kids. And she's the first of everything, this little woman, little Muslim woman. She was the first one to leave the sex work in the cemetery. She was the first one to engage any sort of fledgling entrepreneurship program and started a couple of little businesses and did pretty good. She was the first one whose daughter took a scholarship, uh, an education sponsorship. That daughter was the first girl from the cemetery to go to college. She's the first one that came to know Christ. Here's how she came to know Christ. You seem to know Jesus. What can you tell me about him? When, when she would, when I would come to town, this is before she knew Jesus, when I would come to town, she always wanted me to come to her house, which was about, always, I've seen her live in four places, 10 by 10 flats. The bed that their whole family slept on took up most of the space. Come to my house and pray. She didn't even believe in Jesus. She wanted me to come to her house and pray because I'm a pastor. Therefore, I have the red phone to God. He listens to me. I'm like this, it, it, Honestly, it doesn't work that way. It just, this isn't going to work. She'd bring out the big list, the hard list. My brother's dying, needs to be healed. My daughter's teeth, we can't take her to a dentist. Something's wrong with her mouth. You've got to pray for her, right? And we'd join hands in her little room and I would pray faithless prayers. God's not going to do anything here. And her brother would get healed, and Asia would get healed. And, and here's the thing. I got, this is what i got to deal with. It's her faith, not mine. She didn't even believe in Jesus. Menard died of a heart attack three, three months ago. 34 years old, left three little children. And I don't know what to do about that. She's my hero. I lost my hero and my mentor in the same year. The reason why I think you should come next week is because our operations director, God gave her this dream about Menar that gave me the clearest picture in the world about the theology of the poor and why we need them, they don't need us. See, this whole thing flips on the other side. There are never negative consequences for ex extravagant love. That's the last point this morning. I'll just finish with this. When I was much younger, I was dating the girl I'm married to now. So this is possibly 30 years ago. Um, when I moved back to Portland between my sophomore and junior year in high school, I couldn't find a job. The only job I could find is down at this bindery in Portland, which a bindery is a fancy word for peel and stick or lick and stamp, basically. That's all we did was collate, lick, stamp, you know, that's eight hours. And, and I, 
I was working there, but most of the workforce was made up of uh, day work, week work, homeless. Um, and I made friends with homeless people and um, really gained affection for this group of people that I was standing around a table with. And I learned stuff. I mean, they taught me how to live on the streets, right? I've never lived on the streets, but I know a few things like you shouldn't buy a pack of cigarettes. You should buy a pouch of tobacco and roll your own because the economy of it is just, you know, like 10 to 1. Never done it. I just know it, you know? Just put that in my back pocket for later, right? See, this thing happened after that, after I moved on from that job, is that every time I went downtown, it was like some sort of bat signal went into the sky, and they all knew I was there. And I, it felt like every homeless person would just walk up to me and say, hey, can I have some money? I didn't have any money. I mean, I was poor for a long time. And uh, I took Kimra on a date before we got married. Um, or this was before we got married. Of course, I took her on a date before we got married. A few dates, actually. It wasn't fully arranged or anything, but, you know. We went down to northwest Portland, and I got out of the car. I'm on this side of the street, and I see the guy two blocks that way on the same side of the street, and I said out loud, not tonight. Not tonight. And I said, Kimmer, let's, let's go across the street over here. So we went across the street over here, and that guy went across the street. And the f streets were full. I mean, I picked him out, you know, 100 people. So we're over on this side of the street, and I said, I've changed my mind. Let's go to that side of the street. And we, that guy went over just like that. And so then we're over here. And then I said, you know what? There's a coffee people right across the street. Let's go get a cup of coffee. And so we went across and snuck into coffee people. And Kimmer went to use the restroom, and I got our coffee orders. And I turned around, and he's right there. And he said, hi. Can I have some money? And I said, I don't have any money for you, but I'll buy you dinner. And he said, that'd be great. And he said, what's your name? And I said, my name's Mike. And he said, your name's Michael. And I said, yes, it is. You can call me Mike. And he said, my name's Gabriel. And I said, Gabriel, have you been drinking today? And he goes, yep. <laughs> Beer. And I'm telling you, if I had a lighter and went like this, the room would have gone up. I mean, it was a lot of beer. Um, and so he starts talking to me. He says, Michael, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I could tell. He said, I'm Jewish. I got a cousin who's Christian. We don't get along. And he said, Michael, did you know that there's only three angels named in the Bible? There's Gabriel, Michael, there's Gabriel. I am not, I am not embellishing any of this. This is exactly how it went down. There's Michael. Okay, there's Gabriel. Michael. I forget about this guy. This was Lucifer. So we go across the street, 
to escape from New York pizza. Kimra goes in and orders a couple big slices of pizza and a Coke, and, and we just continue talking on the street, and she comes out, she hands me the drink and the plate of pizza, and I turn and I handed it to Gabriel, and he did this thing where he just went like this. He went, it, it, his tone, his voice, everything changed. He just kind of shrinks down. He says, you fed me. You fed me. And I looked at Kimra, and I looked back, and he was gone. And now I do not, I am not trying to make him something that he wasn't. I don't know. We went looking for him. We couldn't find him. It's been a, a life story for us. Regardless of who he was, it's what the Holy Spirit was doing in us. I have got you. I am with you. Those elbowing of the disciples, you going to take over now? No, I'm going to send you the help of the Holy Spirit. It's a lot better than power. It's a lot better than political power. It's a lot better than financial power. I'm going to send you help. I'm going to send you counsel. I'm going to send you somebody who will convict you of your own stuff which will help you instead of us telling everybody else what their stuff is, right? My mentor who passed away this year, she says, do you know the Holy Spirit has jobs, has a job description? She was from Alabama. I can't do her accent, but do you know that, Mike? Do you know that? Yeah. What are those jobs? And I'd name the most I can. She'd name all of them. And she'd say, Mike, do you have a job? Yes. Do you like it when somebody tries to do your job? No, I do not. Do you think God likes it when somebody's trying to do his job? Stop trying to do his job. I love being here with you. It's a sincere privilege. And the relationship that we get to have with pastors and churches that uh, come alongside us, it's just so meaningful. That is not attached to size of gift. I don't know what anybody gives to a person. Um, I just know that the fellowship of the cross is the most meaningful thing in my life. And I believe everything Jesus said. And I believe he does everything that he says he does. And that's all. Can we stand together and pray? Father in heaven, we come in the name of Jesus because Jesus actually said this thing. He said... You haven't done it this way before. Try using my name. And it's like being sent by Chuck to the hardware store. They'll do you good if you use my name. Father, Jesus said you'd listen to us if we used his name. So we come in the name of Jesus to the most powerful, the one that we know but can't know, the one who makes himself available to us, in the fullness of salvation and surrender even to death on a cross. I pray for every household represented in this room. I pray for healing over the things that we've been asking you for, some of us, for decades. Whether that's our marriage relationship, an estranged child, a child in trouble, a need for healing in our bodies. Lord, we pray and ask you to come and bring visitation upon the things that we don't even know how to ask about. And where we lack faith, 
You gave us a demonstration that it's okay to say, I don't even know if I believe you can do it, and that you count that as faith. And so we take you at face value, and we thank you today as we surrender and release these things to you, and let this place, this church, be a beacon of hope against a backdrop of darkness, Lord, a city on a hill in the name of Jesus, a safe place. Anybody can walk in here. Anybody can walk in and the truth isn't compromised and Holy Spirit, you do your work. And we thank you for that. And I pray for the Bredens. You would cover them and protect them in this time. Give this man great wisdom and inspire him to lead this congregation. And, and give them great joy, we pray. Like laugh out loud joy. We thank you in Jesus' name.